This is episode 186 with sub three marathoner Jonathan Levitt about his training at nearly 10,000 feet altitude and what that did to his physiology. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to is a fascinating conversation about the effects of living and training at high altitude. Jonathan Levitt is the sales manager for Inside Tracker and a competitive runner. He moved to Breckenridge, Colorado, altitude 9,600 feet, for nearly two months, taking blood tests before he went and very recently. You're going to hear about his training, how he felt, the changes in red blood cell counts, testosterone, and more, plus how he felt after a few strong drinks. But before we start, I want to make sure we all have our bib number pinned on correctly. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry, coaches, performance psychologists, elite athletes, registered dietitians, authors, and physical therapists. Our goal is is to give you the knowledge, the mindsets, and tools to elevate your running performances. Because when you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a wiser and more productive athlete. By the way, if you haven't yet, go to YouTube and join our community there. The Strength Running YouTube channel has more than 42,000 subscribers and hundreds of videos on weightlifting for runners, injury prevention, how to run with better form, and a lot more. Search us on YouTube, subscribe, and you'll see every video we publish on a weekly basis. And of course, if you've never visited our website, this is where it all began, strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. And we couldn't have made this episode without our sponsor, Elemental Labs. They make high-sodium electrolytes for athletes to help manage your hydration needs. And they're doing something awesome for Strength Running Podcast listeners. You can get a free Element sample pack. You just have to cover the cost of shipping, which is only $5 for U.S. customers. Go to drinklmnt.com strengthrunning to see the details and claim your free electrolytes today. Each sample pack includes eight packets of Element, two citrus, my personal favorite, two raspberry, two orange, and two unflavored. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to sign up. All right, our guest today is Jonathan Levitt. He's the sales manager for Inside Tracker and host of For the Long Run podcast. In the past, Jonathan and I have enjoyed a coffee in my backyard, and he also invited me to moderate a panel on performance with several ultramarathoners in Boulder. He's a fast runner, having broken the three-hour mark in the marathon, and he recently spent nearly two months in Breckenridge, Colorado, at 9,600 feet. He kept training and used this opportunity to see how his body would respond to such high elevations. He got a full blood test from Inside Tracker before he got up to Breckenridge and just recently to see how he's been affected. The results are fascinating and are what we discussed today in this episode. By the way, if you'd like your own Inside Tracker blood test, code STRENGTHRUNNING will save you 20% off any of their kits. Now, ultimately, 
This episode isn't really about altitude, but more about the fundamentals that help you reach your potential. I hope you enjoy it. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Jonathan Levitt. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, I always enjoy chatting with you, and even more so when it's being recorded. <laughs> well, I'm excited to chat because you have had quite an adventurous month or so here in Colorado, and, which is the reason for our conversation today. We're going to talk about what happened to your body after moving from sea level. You used to live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now you moved up to Breckenridge, Colorado, where the altitude is close to 10,000 feet. Uh, maybe we can start at the beginning. When did you first come to Colorado? So how long have you been here? So my roommate and I drove here. Uh, we left Boston on like the 28th or 29th of January. And we got to Boulder on, I want to say the 30th or the 31st. So we spent two, two or three days in Boulder, which is what, 5,200 feet and then um, made our way up the hill to, uh, to Breckenridge, which sits at um, 9,600 at, <laughs> at the base of the mountain. Um, and uh, I've been, been here ever since. So that, that's about 50 days at high altitude. And it's funny, it's, uh, it's such high altitude that when you Google uh, altitude conversion for running, it doesn't show, <laughs> show 10,000 feet. It's just too high. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. 10,000 feet is, is where things start to get really uncomfortable for a lot of folks. Now, what is the altitude where you're living right now? I know it's about 9,600 at the base of the mountain. Are you at a different altitude? So my watch says 9,600 right now. And so that's where I've been living, sleeping, eating, breathing. Okay. So how did you feel when you first got there? Because it's, it's certainly a big change from where you were in, in Cambridge. Yeah, zero, zero to 10,000 was a pretty substantial difference. Uh, um, initially, everything was exhausting. Um, I mean, I still get tired walking upstairs. We're on the third floor here, and occasionally we don't take the elevator, and it's like you're actually like winded um, once you get up. Um, the first two or three days, um, I had a headache. I, had, um, I was sleeping very poorly, like waking up uh, often at night and my resting heart rate was like almost 70 and, um, it's normally in the low fifties and high forties and to see it like 68, 69 as the high, um, I think it got that high. It was definitely in the mid sixties. Uh, I was like, wow, this is, this is serious. So, um, my first run was, eight miles at a 940 pace. And I, I walked, um, once I, you know, crossed 10 K, um, in distance, I was like, I, I need a break. And three weeks later, I ran the same route at the same effort. So easy, whatever that means here and the same heart rate, 153, um, at an eight minute pace. So I went from like 930, 940 to eight in three weeks um, which was wild. And, uh, it's just been getting, it's been getting better ever since, which is good and expected. Yeah. That's amazing. And did your training change when you 
came first to Colorado? Because I know that you've, you were running a fair amount and you know, you're a pretty accomplished runner. You're a sub three marathoner. What was the difference in training from when you were in Cambridge? And then when you first got to Breckenridge, did you like kind of take a down week just to help yourself adapt to the higher altitudes? Yeah. So the first couple of days in Boulder were much lower mileage, um, just to get used to altitude period. And then, um, I had no expectations for pace. Um, I normally, I was running 55 to 65 miles a week and like my highest volume here has been 45. Um, I, the biggest change was, so I do, I do Monday off day, Tuesday normally is eight miles. Wednesday is a workout where it's anywhere from 10 to 12 miles. And then Thursday has traditionally been like a pretty slow eight. And Friday is four to six and Saturday long and Sunday medium long. So the biggest change was we cut Thursday's running, Thursday's run entirely. So taking out like 10 or 20% of the weekly volume right there. Um, And that, that transition to like easy hike or skiing or like some sort of like aerobic cross training. And then Fridays were cut down to four initially um, and then went to four to six. And long runs were 14 to 18 previously. And now (laughs) I haven't run more than 12 miles in a long time. Um, And most of my long runs are like 10 to 12 and takes just as long as running 14 um, or 16 even. And then Sundays have dropped by like two miles sometimes. Um, So yeah, it's like overall like a 25% decrease in overall volume from a running standpoint. Um, But I'm doing a lot more aerobic activity in general. And really for like for the first few weeks, I didn't even do a long run. Um, I would hike for like five hours and my heart rate was like, you know, what a, what a regen run would be at sea level. So I was, I was keeping like 110 to 130 heart rate for five hours while climbing, you know, 4,000 feet. Um, (laughs) it's a pretty big aerobic stimulus. So, uh, I felt good about that doing, you know, a five hour hike at an easy effort, um, comparable, um, versus like a two hour long run or a, you know, hour and 45 minute long run. Yeah. And it sounds like the the reduction in mileage was necessary just to keep you training almost at a similar volume in terms of time. So, you know, you mentioned that 10 to 12 milers taking the same amount of time as that 14 to 16 miler. That's one of the things that I've always found is so challenging about altitude is that you're training in such a stressful environment that you have to reduce your overall mileage but that doesn't necessarily mean you're running for any less time because you're running so much slower up there. So you're probably getting a very similar aerobic stimulus from 45 miles a week than you were getting from 60 miles a week. Yeah. I mean, last weekend I did a run. Um, we started at 11,000 feet and it took me two and a half hour, almost two and a half hours to run that run nine miles. And in two and a half hours, like in Boston, I'm running 20 miles. And I, I didn't even hit 10. <laughs> I didn't even hit nine. It was like eight and a, eight and three quarters. Um, and, but, but outside of that, 
to your point, like the volume, the weekly aerobic volume is roughly the same, if not higher. Um, I mean, I had an 18 hour week, like week three, and I touched 18 hours in a training week, like three times. And I was like spent (laughs) after that week. And, but it's working. Like I feel so fit and I'm having so much fun. And that's the other component that like, I've never skied before and I'm doing Nordic skiing. And so it's like, it's really hard to, to skate ski. And so you putz around for, you know, 45 minutes and it's a work, it's a workout. It's fun, but it's also like a pretty decent workout. Um, so that's a balance I'm trying to find. Like how, how do I maintain training while having fun and taking advantage of my surroundings? Like there's a Nordic trail, uh, like eight minutes away and I can just go there after work and do that for 45 minutes. And it's a blast. It's not running, but it's, uh, it's, it's a contributor to, uh, to progress and fun. It's almost like the altitude makes it easier for you to get in a lot more aerobic training because, you know, you can do some skate skiing and and maybe that wouldn't be a great workout at sea level, but because you're up so high, it, it is a great workout. There's just that much more stress on your aerobic system. Yeah. The part that's wild about that is like the, the limit, the lower effort maintaining a similar um, comparison of work. Like I did a... An, it sounds like you were going to get into asking about workouts, but I, I did a hill workout where it was continuous uphill, but the rest or the recovery segment, I just continued walking and my heart rate stayed high enough that again, in Boston, that would be a running heart rate. So I was, I would do, it was like two minutes uphill and then I would keep walking and my heart rate would stay at 135, 140, like for the duration of the rest interval. Altitude is humbling, isn't it? What, <laughs> did you have to leave some of your preconceived notions of what you're capable of and what is, you know, quote unquote, normal for you when you moved up to Breckenridge? Yeah. So I hate talking about numbers and paces because it's also relative, but I'm going to do it here to provide context. So uh, in May of 2019, I ran a marathon at 650 pace. Here, I I can barely I can barely run that as an uphill pace for a minute. And like that's like I ran 26 miles at that pace and and I can I can barely sustain that. I say barely. I did a I did a workout this week where my hill pace was above 7. And again in Boston like I can some days like that's an easy pace for me and I <laughs> It, it was like, you know, you're tasting pennies because you're working so hard. Um, and it, yeah, it was very humbling. And I had to remove all notion of like what fast means. And I think that's good every so often. Um, I had some, some time this past summer when I was running watchless because I needed to like disassociate from the paces and need, needed to like think about other things and the f- having fun and joy and this and that. And so, yeah, so having like, having it just not matter has been really fun. Yeah. I think it, I really do agree with you that I think it's important for runners every once in a while to do things that 
make running very different from what they were previously used to. And so that might be, you know, moving up to altitude, or it might be something very different training for such different races or, you know, a new event, a new distance that you've never done before. But I think it's so valuable because you're learning more about yourself, how your body responds to different types of stress. And, you know, speaking of stress, speaking of workouts, uh, I was going to ask you about this because this is arguably the hardest part of running at such a high altitude is trying to run fast, trying to do any kind of, you know, performance oriented workout where, you know, maybe you're not running by effort, but, you know, if you're running any kind of race pace, you almost can't do that at those altitudes because your race pace is so different. So can you talk to us about your workouts and, you know, do you start doing workouts when you first moved up there or do you kind of gradually ease into them over the, the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So, um, so I work with a coach, uh, David Roche, who's been, uh, a serial guest on this podcast. Um, yes, he has. He's great. He is amazing. And so we, we eased into it, no workouts for the first couple of weeks. And then, um, all of a sudden it was time for workouts. And so we started, so he's big with fartlek style effort-based workouts where pace isn't the driving factor, it's it's effort. So he uses, you know, easy, mod and fast or hard. Very infrequently is hard used. Um fast is roughly 10k ish to 5k. Um and if it's anything faster than that, he'll, you know, indicate that. So we started off with a lot of 10k um, a lot of 10 K work. And right now I could probably run a 10 K at like six Oh five pace and, uh, at sea level. And, and that, that effort here is like six forty five. Um, and so for the first few weeks I was doing a whole lot of, <laughs> a whole lot of like fast at what was roughly my marathon pace, which was hilarious to see. Um, because I would be, I'm not saying like totally spent, but like objectively harder at the same effort by the end of the rep, which maybe means I was going too fast. Um, we then got into a, a strength block and he <laughs> making use of all the hills out here. The hardest part has been every run, basically you're, run, you're gaining a hundred feet a mile, no matter where you go. Um, on average. And the joke in Breckenridge is that Breckenridge flat is if you run less than a thousand feet of gain over eight miles. And so like all of my runs have been in the like 700 to 1200 feet of gain. And again, this is coming from sea level and I'm doing as much gain in a week as I was doing in like two months. So that part has been challenging, but um, we got into a into a strength block with a decent amount of of the hill work, and I did. So I've done two very hard workouts. One was a one minute, two minute, three minute, two minute, one minute hills hard, and I ran out of turnover on the two the first two minute rep, <laughs> and I was like, "This is going to be brutal on the three minute one." And what he said to me after that was, after you do hills at 10,000 feet, anything becomes easy, even racing. And so I've done, he's had me do, um, we're getting like very into the details here. I, I, I kind of love it. I don't often do this, but um, his like, 
his like staple workout prior to a 50k or he had me do this before running rim to rim to rim is a five by three minutes hard uphill which i did in boston for those who are familiar with boston summit ave is like the steepest hill so it's like 15 percent um you know average or 12 percent average but it gets up to 15 percent and so that's like pretty hard um and I thought that was like the hardest hill workout I could possibly do because when you're in, you know, minute two of a three minute hill and you have another minute, like the cars that are coming at you look pretty appealing. Like the grill looks pretty appealing to just like run straight into. <laughs> um, and this was like so much harder than that um, because again, you get to a point where like, I ran those at like a 745 pace and I was like completely out of steam by the end of it. And it's, it's just like, it's such like a mind, like it was bizarre to be running again, like what would be my easy pace uphill and like having no gas at all and having no turnover and then like dry heaving on the side of the road as like these skiers are driving down to go ski the mountain. They're like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> is he okay? <laughs> that reminds me of doing a hill workout in Boulder at the Chautauqua uh, State Park, I think it is. And there's a dirt road next to the big field as you, as you kind of drive in there. And I did hill reps right on that dirt road. And I think I did them at seven or seven fifteen pace. And it was the hardest hill workout that I've done in recent memory. And that's the pace that I would run, you know, even here in Denver, you know, that's, that's so, still somewhat easy. Definitely at sea level, that would be easy for me, but to do a workout where you're running your easy pace is, is so humbling. Um, now, Jonathan, when you, when you, moved out there, did you make any other changes to help yourself kind of adjust to that altitude? Uh, any nutrition changes, any changes to your sleep, anything like that, where you were trying to really optimize, you know, taking care of yourself? Yeah. So, um, so I work at Inside Tracker and I have a lot of smart people around me. And so I took a blood test in December to make sure things like iron and vitamin D were where they should be and testosterone as well. Um, and they all were. And it was just a confirmation of like, keep doing what you're doing. And then I spoke with uh, one of our sports dietitians and one uh, and Stephanie Howe, who is a PhD exercise physiologist and a professional trail runner herself. And I believe her thesis was on um, the impact of altitude, uh, essentially. So I was like, what should I do? <laughs> and she wrote a blog uh, for Inside Tracker that's on our site. And it talks about a couple of the things that are most important, which include eating more, sleeping more, and nailing uh, the micronutrients that support um, the things that are harder to do at altitude, which is essentially muscle recovery. So many people, when they come to altitude, will get like unexpectedly sore from an easy run at a similar pace or even a slower pace. Um, I was like, my, my calves were torched after my first eight mile run. I was like, what the hell is going on? And so she explained it to me and it has to do with the, the, I'm going to 
really screw this up. So maybe we can, you know, drop the <laughs> drop the blog or like the actual references in the show notes here. But essentially, your needs from a vitamin D standpoint and iron standpoint are higher based on the um, based on what's happening internally. And so you want to be eating more protein, you want to be eating more carbohydrates, and you want to be drinking more water. And she told me, and eat more pizza. So I've been eating more pizza. Um, and then sleep is also harder. Um, and so like going to bed earlier because maybe you'll wake up uh, earlier um, is, a, is a suggestion as well. I was drinking so much water for the first few weeks that um, like I'd wake up at 5 a.m. every day because I needed to pee. And so like sometimes I would just stay awake. Um, I've been keeping East Coast hours at work. Um, so getting to bed earlier in the event that I wake up earlier uh, has been um, important as well. But yeah, those are the those are the components that I focused a lot on. Um, definitely eating like quality sources of, of lean meat. Um, what I love about Colorado is the like the different game meats that are available here like elk and bison and and whatnot um i guess bison's probably not game meat but anyway um and and the iron rich sources or the the iron uh, benefits that those foods have um and just a change in the in the palate as well uh but yeah that's that's what i did from a, a difference in uh nutrition just more yeah, more. And when the dietitian tells you to eat more pizza, I think it's safe to say <laughs> you should listen. And hey, the I got a test back last week and the data is much better. So more pizza, more health. <laughs> I love it. And let's talk about that because that, this, I think, is the most interesting aspect of this whole experiment for you is not only do you have just all of this qualitative data, how you feel and, you know, just kind of like the perceived effort of different types of runs and how you're now sleeping better because you're a little bit more adapted to the altitude. But now we can be quantitative because you got a pretty complete blood panel done in December, like you mentioned, before you ever went up to altitude. And now after what, a, roughly a month and a half or so of being up there. And so Maybe can we start with like the executive summary? What happened to you after six weeks of training at uh, almost 10,000 feet from, you know, the, the internal perspective? So objectively, everything you would expect to happen from uh, like red blood cell, hemoglobin, hematocrit, anything iron and CBC related, that all improved. What was shocking is the, the magnitude of improvement. Apparently, I'm a very high responder to altitude. Um, my hematocrit jumped almost 10%. Um, sorry, more than that. I mean, it went high enough that like, if I were a professional athlete, the data, like the, the number would be flagged because it's above 50 and people dope to get above 50. Wow. Um, which was, which was wild. And then the hemoglobin went up significantly as well. The highest value I'd seen, um, out of anyone. And uh, this is a sign of uh, training stimulus and a favorable response to training, um, not overtraining and, and seeing the, the response you want. And then red blood cell count also skyrocketed. Now, the, the piece that um, I've spoken with a bunch of experts on this, both internally and my coach and, and whatnot, and 
uh, dehydration can falsely inflate these values, but my sodium level uh, invalidates that as a potential um, hypothesis of why this went so high. So if it were to be high, it could indicate being dehydrated, increasing these values. And the other component that um, we didn't talk about prior was I've been using a hot tub every day for a month and a half, and this increases blood plasma volume. So not only am I having the the altitude benefits, but I've also got the heat benefits of submersion. I mean, I do it because it's fun. But David was like, when you when you get there, you know, go in a hot tub, go, go in a hot bath. And I was like, how about a hot tub? He's like, even better. Um, so there's there's plenty of of um, science to validate that doing that increases training adaptations and and causes for adaptations, and that's separate from uh, from the altitude benefit. So all of this combined, the the red blood, the increase in the red blood cell count. Is fantastic. Again, people dope for this response. Um, obviously, I didn't, um, but but I'm seeing I'm seeing a response. Uh, I was chatting with Shalane Flanagan about it uh, this morning, and I messaged her. I was like, "Have you ever seen hematocrit this high?" And she's like, "No." <laughs> and and elites will dope to get like they would do anything to get values that high. Uh, they should go to ten thousand feet for two months, but the the reason that I think that people don't go to 10,000 feet for two months is because it is so high that um, you sacrifice quality, right? Like I, I've been running slower and I need to go lower and run faster in order to run fast. So that's the sort of the downside. Now I'm, I'm prepped for it and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's always been the interesting part of of altitude is, you know, you can do what you did, go up to 10,000 feet for a fairly long time. Most people don't have that ability to do so. And you'll get these amazing blood values. But at the same time, you're not training as intensely. Uh, and, and, a, and a lot of the things that pro runners care about, you know, performance, speed, their ability to run fast, that is compromised a bit by being up at those altitudes. And it's almost like you are you, you being an altitude is like a long-term investment. You are not going to run fast up there, but when you come down, you might, you know, have the blood values to then run very fast, provided that you've, you've done some, you know, some training up at altitude, even if it has come down a bit. Right. I, I wanted to know about testosterone too. Did that change at all? Uh, cause this is one of those things where I'm not sure if it's really impacted by altitude, is it? So, Intuitively, you might think that it would go down if your sleep is poor, you're training hard, and you're not uh, recovering like you could at a lower altitude. Mine actually went up by by 200 points, um, and it's the highest it's been in four years. I'm also like the happiest I've been in a long time. And again, I was talking with with Stephanie about this, and there. There's plenty of data to suggest that happiness and fulfillment and joy contributes to lower levels of cortisol, which I experienced, your stress hormone, and higher levels of testosterone. So is it, am I happier because of that? Or is that because I'm happier? I don't know. But um, that level is 1,100. And I haven't seen anything above 1,000 in 
four years since I was not training nearly as hard. Um, and so, yeah, that went up, it went up 200 points in two months, essentially. Um, I think some of that is a contribution from tweaking my diet a little bit and maybe making sure I was eating enough. Um, but again, like that value hasn't been that high in four years. So I, I like to think that this is less training related and more life related. I'm also sleeping eight hours a night consistently. I'm probably averaging 8.15 and that's a contributing factor as well. It's like you have all these people that talk about um, all these different products to support training and recovery and this and that. It's like your most valuable product is your bed and using it and using it a lot and using it enough. And like, I think that that's a contributing factor, but um, I don't want to discount the, like the happiness factor in, in that, you know, 20 plus percent increase. No. And I don't think we should. It sounds like when two things are related, you know, there's this virtuous cycle where, you know, they can both be improving each other. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, the altitude working on your red blood cell count and the hot tub working on your plasma. And, and, and both of those are working together to help you just feel better and, and really adapt to where you're at right now. And, and I think the same is true for things exactly like this too. You know, your testosterone went up probably because you're having an absolute blast up there. You're doing what you love. You feel so satisfied and fulfilled. But then also, it sounds like you're eating really well. You're sleeping a lot. You know, your training volume might have come down a little bit or maybe even just the intensity a little bit. And so they're all kind of, I think, related and, and have contributed to that. But that is just an amazing improvement in testosterone. You must feel like you can run through a wall right now. <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty unstoppable at the moment. <laughs> It's awesome. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, you know, we, we talked about some of the specific things that have improved in with your blood test, but then, you know, how do you feel compared to that first week when you weren't sleeping very well, you were running much slower than you used to? Has it been kind of an about face in your perceived effort and things? And do you feel like you're now, what I might say is, is fully adapted to that altitude or are you always really going to feel 10,000 feet? So, yes, you're always going to feel 10,000 feet, but I feel better at it. Um, I, I continue to find myself like, so I also host a podcast and many times speaking on the podcast when I get excited about something or like even today, um, when I like talk for a long time, I need to pause and like take a break because I'm like winded. Um, I do a weekly therapy call and I take it as a walking call. And anytime I walk up a hill, I need to either stop talking or stop walking. <laughs> and it's just like, it just doesn't go away. Um, now, I mean, the, the most bizarre thing is getting winded, putting your pants on or doing like dynamic drills to warm up for a 10 mile run and like running consistently for 10 miles. But as I'm pulling my tights on, I'm like spent. Um, and I still, I still get that. I, I, I was in Flagstaff a couple years ago, which is 7,000 feet. And I had come from sea level and I was meeting with Ben Bruce 
in the indoor track. Um, and so the track is at the bottom of the stadium and then you walk up the stairs to get out. And so we were walking up the stairs and I was just like totally spent. And so I just like fired off a question at him so I wouldn't have to speak. <laughs> and then he finished speaking. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm like winded. He's like, Hey man, I've been living here for 10 years and I still, you know, this, it still happens to me. And here's a professional athlete who's lived at, at 7,000 feet for 10 years. And it's, he's, it still happens to him. Um, but the, the most bizarre part is like you go outside and you see old people like out doing sports and I'm like, you're 80 years old and you're like totally fine. <laughs> like it's crazy to see. Um, and I, I was in, uh, I was in Ure a couple of weeks ago, which is 8,000 feet in Southwestern Colorado. And there's a road called million dollar highway. And it's, it's just a hill. It's a very long hill. It's a, it's a highway, but leaving, leaving town, you climb, I don't know, 500 or a thousand feet in two miles. And I saw 75, 80 year olds running this uphill. And I'm like, this is who I want to be when I'm 80 years old, just beasting this hill and like not minding the fact that you're at 8,000 feet. So I think you get used to it over time, but it doesn't make it any easier. Yeah, that is. I, I get that question a lot too about just being in Denver, and Denver is is really only half the altitude of where you're at, pretty much. And, and that's exactly what I typically say to people. It's like you'll notice it, and you'll probably be running slower than you did at in you know on the East Coast or anywhere at sea level. But you know, it's just a challenge. You know, it's a more stressful place, and uh, you know. If you've ever like, you know, had a glass of wine or a beer and then you forgot something upstairs and you like would run up the stairs to go get something, that is like the experience that will just leave you. <laughs> you need to sit down and take a minute. <laughs> well, the funny thing about being this high is that one glass of wine or or can of beer will like you'll be buzzed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's let's talk about that. Have you um maybe had more than a glass of wine or a beer at any one point? And and how did that affect you? I, w I had like two tall boys, uh, so 16 ounce. And yeah, I was like pretty buzzed. <laughs> um, and it's just like, I mean, I, I drank like probably too much in college. And it's it's fascinating to see like the amount that like I would be like stone cold sober with like enough to get me pretty buzzed here which is like one and a half to two beers <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't matter what you're doing you could be running you could be walking up a flight of stairs or drinking a glass of wine it's all difficult at altitude that is true now jonathan you're you're a pretty fast guy you're you're a sub three marathoner i mentioned that before uh you have a coach so you know, what are the practical implications of everything you've learned of, of all the data now coming back? How are you going to use all this then to help your running? Well, I'm moving to Boulder. <laughs> the data said that I'm the healthiest I've ever been. So I should probably stay, um, which is which is not a joke. I am doing that. Um, but more practically or more tangibly in terms of like what what can be learned from this it's just do the basics, right? Like there's nothing that I'm doing that's too far out of the ordinary in terms of like what is causing growth and progress. I haven't stopped. 
I've stayed consistent. I sleep enough. I eat enough. And I take the supplements that my body needs. And like, there's no, uh, I, if I did that at sea level, I'd, I'd progress. Maybe I wouldn't progress as quickly going from 10,000 feet to 5,000 feet to sea level. But, um, it just sort of reaffirms that like, so uh, Ben Berzeron is a, is a world renowned CrossFit coach and his line is, uh, do the common uncommonly well, sleep, eat, move, just do those things and do them consistently and good enough. And you'll be fine. Like I had a little, uh, injury flare up a few weeks ago and I said, I don't want to miss a week of training or two weeks of training. So I'm taking today off and maybe I'll take tomorrow off. And so I did. And so I was a little uh, overzealous on the rest perhaps, but I wanted that because I figured two days off was better than two weeks off. And as I've, I've been running for, I don't know, eight years now, which for some is a lot and for many is not a lot. Um, but I've learned enough and I've, made enough stupid mistakes to know that like one or two runs will never be worth it uh no matter what and i think that that the importance of that is emphasis overemphasized and in a place like this where like everything is so much more taxing and doing the again doing the right things repeatedly that's the only way to get like the secret to getting better is there is no secret just do it more and everything I've seen and done here just continues to reaffirm that um, at a higher magnitude, pun intended, of course. <laughs> Are you going to be using altitude in the future, maybe as like a, a little camp to go to? You know, maybe you're going to be living in Boulder, but you might spend a long weekend or a week up in Breckenridge or another area where the altitude is a lot higher. Are you going to be, in other words, kind of using altitude as a training tool in the future? Yeah, I mean, what I get to do for work gives me the ability to, at this point, be anywhere. Um, and I think that, I think that yes, I think the answer is yes. Like being in Boulder with such access to Flagstaff or, you know, other things like that, where I, I wouldn't pick Breckenridge for a training camp. Uh, but I would pick Flagstaff and going from 5,000 to 7,000. Uh, sure. That's productive. Um, I think that anything, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I think that anything above 7,000 feet is, is, or 8,000 feet, like the benefits are, or the, the drawbacks outweigh the benefits. There's a reason that there are no Olympians training in this town. There's a reason that Flagstaff is the most popular, uh, place for Olympians, like maybe in the world. Um, and there's a reason that Boulder is such a distance running Mecca. It's because in these places, um, you can get quality work in and you can sleep high, high enough, but also recover. And, um, yeah, in terms of how I'll use altitude. Um, so I think I mentioned I'm, I'm, I will have a place in Boston as well and I'll, I can go back whenever I want. And so with that, I can pick a race on the East Coast or in Massachusetts, and I can spend three months or two months or whatever in, you know, at 5,200 feet 
and then go back three days prior and feel fantastic at sea level and just do that over and over again. I have a lot of friends that live out here that um, they don't really know what their race pace is until they race because they're 5,000 feet higher. I think it's an extreme advantage and an extreme luxury. Um, and I'm looking forward to um, seeing what it can do for me. Are you worried at all that the any gains that you get from altitude will just be wiped out by Boston's humidity? Because if you go there and <laughs> you know, June, July, August, you're going to be struggling compared with the nice, crisp, dry air here in Colorado? Uh, yes. Um, humidity, humidity is worse than altitude. I, I can, that's my opinion. And it's also the, the opinion of a lot of people that live at, that have lived at both. Um, yeah, Boston, when it's 100% or 95% humidity, it's like, it's oppressive. And it's, you can't escape it and you lose 10 pounds on a 10 mile run. Like you just can't replace that. Um, and that's another thing, like you adapt to it. And so popping into 90% humidity versus popping into 5,000 or 8,000 feet, it's comparable. Um, but I think that with altitude, you can just slow down. But with humidity, if you slow down, it still sucks. <laughs> There's no getting around it, is it? Nope. Jonathan, uh, this is so interesting. I've just had so much fun talking to you about this because I feel like, you know, we hear about elite runners going to high altitude training camps. You know, we kind of know about this strategy from, you know, a theoretical perspective, but I think it's so fascinating to hear, you know, a quote unquote normal runner, you know, you're not sponsored by Nike yet, Jonathan, yet, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you've, and the testing that you've done has just been so illuminating because it's shown, you know, what is happening in your body, what your red blood cells are doing, your, your plasma levels, all those really interesting aspects of your physiology. And you can see how they are just so directly related to, you know, your training environment and your lifestyle and, and what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think this is just fascinating. It's a great case study. And, and I think it teaches us a lot about the value of the basics, the fundamentals, and some things we can learn about altitude too. So thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing your experiences with us. This was just fascinating for me. For sure. Thanks for uh, letting me nerd out for, for a bit here. And Jonathan, you're a real treat to follow on social media. So where can our listeners connect with you? And I also want you to plug your podcast as well. Thank you so much. Um, so you can follow me, JW Levitt, on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and my podcast is called For the Long Run, aimed at exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. Um, and yeah, I've had a lot of, a lot of Colorado athletes on there recently. Um, and, uh, I wonder why, <laughs> yeah, I'm seeking sponsorship from Colorado board of tourism. If you know anyone, just kidding. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me on and, uh, hopefully see you down in Denver, Boulder sometime soon. Yeah, it should be exciting, Jonathan. Well, thank you so much. And we're going to include links to your podcast and your socials and all that good stuff in the show notes on the strength running site. So thanks, Jonathan. Of course. Thank you. That wraps my discussion about the physiology of altitude and the effects of training at high elevation with Jonathan Levitt. 
Follow along with his adventures and enjoy his running puns on social media where you can find him at JWLevitt on both Twitter and Instagram. And don't miss his podcast for the long run available anywhere. Finally, I want to hook you up with some free electrolytes. Our sponsor, Elemental Labs, is offering a free sample pack with four flavors and eight different packets at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You only have to pay for shipping. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, and no artificial colors. I am very partial to the citrus flavor, which I honestly can't get enough of. It's tasty, it's delicious, and it's something that I really enjoy when I do any running more than about 45 minutes. And there's now mounting evidence that the higher recommended sodium intake levels from the FDA are not actually harmful, especially for athletes, if you're training a lot or if you're exercising in hot and humid conditions. Now, of course, ask your doctor if you're worried, but for those athletes running five plus days per week, training for longer events or outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement does make a lot of sense. And I'm encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and pro athletes have started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized for the spring season. Thank you for being here, everyone. We'll be in touch soon. 